Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of a changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October the 17th, 2014. This is episode 1447 of the Survival Podcast. And I'll do my best with you for, uh, best for you with it today. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's about all the voice has. I'm dealing with traveling, speaking, allergies all at the same time. So the voice is a little hoarse, but I can't have a Friday show without a Friday, Friday, Friday in there. This is where we take your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Give that uh, number a call. You'll get a voicemail system. and You leave me a message. Make your point or ask your question immediately, and then give me your details, and you'll be more likely to get on the show. Heard from somebody today that called in and asked a question about composting plants. And uh, the background sounded like this, like some big motor was running behind it or something. Call did not get on the air. I mean, I know sometimes I say don't call from the back of a motorcycle is a joke, but if I can't hear you, I can't play you. With that, though, most of the calls this week just crushed you. They were good calls, followed the formula. I've got a great series of calls for you today. I'll have them on for you in just a moment. Before I do, let us go ahead and take care of our sponsors They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor day number one today is KnifeKits.com. I often say that America is devolving into a nation of people that can't do shit. And I really mean it. And I don't mean, you know, high math or something like that. I just mean basic stuff like change your own oil or fix a broken table or whatever. Man, when I was a kid, you didn't call a guy unless it was something that was either going to kill you or cost you a lot of money if you screwed it up. Today, people call a guy for everything. And guys know how to do like their one thing. There's no more Mr. Fixer that can do everything. America was built as a nation on people that could do stuff. We really were. And basic skills like hand tools and things like that were something every boy grew up learning how to do. I remember as a kid building ramps that were probably way too dangerous for me in my garage and then jumping my bike over them, sometimes landing with a beautiful, perfect landing and sometimes busting my ass. But I learned how to build stuff. People don't know how to do it anymore. Building a knife is a great place to start. You can get a kit at knifekits.com. You can get a book, a DVD. You can get some help from their staff by calling them. doesn't cost a lot of money. Learn how to do final fit and finish and form and select your own handle material. Build something really nice for not a lot of money and start developing those skills if you don't already have them. And what a great way to incentivize your kiddos you know, to start learning those skills with, with dad or mom. What an awesome, awesome way to get them involved because what kid, especially what boy, Doesn't want to build a knife with his dad. Check him out today, knifekits.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Backwoods Home is such an awesome magazine that I first subscribed to them in 1994. It's 2014. I'm still a subscriber. And when I picked them up as an advertiser a few years ago, I'm pretty sure if I would have said to Dave Duffy, give me a subscription for free as part of my deal with you, he would have said, dude, done. I haven't. I've remained a paying subscriber for over 20 years. I should tell you what I think about Backwoods Home Magazine. You can learn more at BackwoodsHome.com. Remember, Knife Kits and Backwoods Home, along with many of our other sponsors and a lot of other great companies, do support the Member Support Brigade. You can become a member of the Support Brigade by going to survivalpodcast.com, clicking on Members and signing up there. You'll get great discounts on a lot of really great stuff. Check it out today. SurvivalPodcast.com. Click on members of the MSB banner. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you do qualify for a discount. 
Just uh, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or what you did in one or two sentences, and I will get that discount code back to you. The big deal is you have to email me when, before, not after you join. Now let's have a, let's have a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1447, and Alex Shrugged has two for us today. One is buying a fort on the installment plan. It's kind of interesting. You can read that one for yourself at tspwiki.com for the year 1447, and then there is a well-born Pope is Dead. I'm going to read that one because I have an interesting take that I think is very relevant to modern-day people that has nothing to do with government or politics or anything like that uh, that's made by this, and you probably won't see it until I show it to you. Uh, Alex has a completely different take, which is also valid and interesting. So here we go. Well-born Pope is Dead. Pope Eugene IV has passed away two weeks after receiving a unifying vote of confidence from Europe against anti-Pope Felix V. The agreement puts the rest the second schism of the church. Pope Eugene has been holding court in Florence for years because Rome was an utterly ungovernable. With his return to Rome in 1443, he founded, funded a crusade to push back the Ottoman Turks, but instead of conquering the Turks, the crusaders negotiated a 10-year truce. The Pope released the crusaders from the treaty and sent them out again, utterly unprepared for a second war. The Crusaders were destroyed, leaving Europe vulnerable to the Ottomans. Pope Eugene also struck a blow for slavery, designating the enslavement of Africans as a crusade to bring the Africans to Christendom. So it's okay to enslave them because they're better off slaves who are Christians than free men who are pagans. Such was the church anyway. Pope Eugene was an unhappy pope. Remarking on his deathbed that he wished he had never left his monastery, he is succeeded by Pope Nicholas V, who will bring the city of Rome back into order. My take by Alex Shrugged. Most leaders are a mixed bad bag of good and bad. Pope Eugene was kind to the poor. He managed to stop the second schism of the church, brought back fold uh, various groups that had broken away during the previous schism. He even brought the Greek church back to the Latin church. Unfortunately, this last unification was more theoretical than real. The agreement with the Greek church was entirely one-sided in favor of the Latin church and was probably negotiated that way because the emperor of Eastern Empire was desperate for a crusade to be mounted against the Ottomans. The crusade ended in disaster, so the Latin and Greek church is split once more. It probably would have worked in the long run anyway. Okay, um, my take by this. First of all, you know, um, I think it's important when we look back to the history of the Catholic Church in Europe and Asia Minor, We understand the time and the role the church played. It wasn't just the religion was important in people's lives. It was that the religious entity that was the Catholic Church was a government onto itself that crossed borders. So you almost can think of the church of the time as almost like a federal government federalizing all the, 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 the nation states of England and France, etc. Because even if you fled England to France and to the part of France that wasn't controlled by England during the Hundred Years' War, and you were now under French monarchy that would say, I don't care what the English want you for, we're not giving you to them. The Pope could still get you. The Church could still get you. Just like uh, at the time, that, at one time in the United States, if you were wanted for something like, oh, I don't know, stealing horses, which you could be hung for in Arkansas, and you left Arkansas and went to another state, Arkansas really didn't have a way to go get you. Um, such is the case with the actual history of a guy you might know named Wyatt Earp. So think of the church of the time as the federal government of today. Not exactly the same. 
Um, in some ways worse, in some ways not as bad, but having that authority. So when you have a schism, it would be like having two presidents, one in Austin and one in uh, Washington, D.C., both claiming the right to govern the entire nation. And I think you have to put that in perspective to get how big a deal the schism was and how big a church was and issues with the church were at the time of these people. My take, though, on this that has to do with today and you and making the right decisions for yourself. So this pope ends up laying on his deathbed going, I should have never left the monastery. I should have stayed a simple monk. There's this saying that people are seldom promoted to their highest level of competence and left there. They're generally promoted one more time into their lowest level of incompetence. And that makes them miserable and it's bad for everybody. That's an essential in management. It's a mistake you try not to make. You have a guy that's really great at his job. You have a position above his level. You don't really have any good candidates. And you think, this is the best guy I got. Something tells you not to put him there. You do anyway. And when you tell him he's getting promoted, he's excited, he's going to make more money, he's going to have more authority, he's climbing the corporate ladder, yada, yada, yada. But something tells him not to take the job, he does anyway. you got to be careful with that, both as the person making the decision of who to hire, promote, etc., and as the person being made the offer. There is a belief that people who say, no, I never want to be a manager, I'm happy doing what I'm doing, or I don't ever want to move into senior management, I'm happy doing what I'm doing, I don't ever want to do that, I want to stay an engineer, I don't want to do that, I want to stay a carpenter, whatever, are lacking ambition. But maybe their ambition is to be really good at what they do and to be happy. That's my take by Jack Spierko on this story from 1447. With that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. And if my voice seemed to get better, it's because I went and made a cup of tea. Um, I made a tea with some traditional black tea and some goji berry leaf and uh, honey. And Jake, if you're out there, I've got your feral bee honey in my tea, and it's helping my throat a great deal. So... Um, just want to let you know that uh, it's a good thing that we learn how to medicate ourselves without turning to drugs unless we absolutely have to. Before I take your first call, I do have a few things I want to cover. The first one is the TSP Fall Festival. Fall Festival, I'm sorry. That was the Permian Ethos Fall Festival. We have a fall event, fall uh, workshop here at the TSP Ranch, our little three-acre place. We'll be extending our food forest. We'll have a bunch of trees to work with. We'll be working in a lot of clump design environments where I'm going to give you guys a space that we may not even plan or prep, but I'll say design the space. And on some of those, it'll be like, use any plant you want. Um, we'll also be putting in some irrigation. We'll be doing some planting. I have about 100 trees uh, that I need to go get out in Lindale and pick up from Bob uh, Wells. I don't know. We'll plant them all. We'll plant a lot of them. Uh, we are going to have an excellent workshop on plant propagation led by Nicholas Ferguson. It's going to be a great time. And I just want to let you know, there is one spot open. And if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and look at the post right underneath, um, This episode, 1447, you'll be able to click a link there and sign up and take that spot if you want to. If you beat me to the punch and somebody claims it and I don't fix it, and you see it's sold out when you try to pay the deposit, it's sold out, and that's just how it is. I'll try to post that, though, as soon as it happens. Just want to let you guys know that. Another one that I want to give you a little quick update on before we move forward is GenForward.com. GenForward is something that's coming. You can learn more by going to GenForward.com and filling out a little form. And I will let you know secrets about Gen Forward before the actual release date. The original release date for Gen Forward was going to be November the 10th. It's now going to be November the 17th. I'm still giving away the whole ball of wax 
at the workshop that runs the 6th, 7th, and 8th, including the video that will be part of the Indiegogo campaign, will be seen, and maybe two videos seen by the students that are here. Um, I'm also going to do something on Monday. I'm going to wait till Monday to do this. The people that have signed up for uh, the pre-launch information on Gen 4 have gotten nothing yet from us. We haven't actually given them any information. There is part of Gen Ford that is the Gen Ford Pledge. It's nine tenets that we promise to honor right from our beginning. And if you read them all, it gives away a lot. You could probably figure out 90% of what Gen Ford is just from the nine tenets. I'm going to read two of them to you today that won't do that. But it'll give you a feel for this. And if you want to know the rest of them on Monday, sign up for the announcement list and you'll get the nine tenets delivered to your inbox sometime on Monday. Uh, tenant number one, be a force for good. A famous company has a pledge to do no evil. Don't mention them in the pledge, but we all know it's Google, okay? So I'm start over. A famous company has a pledge to do no evil. We feel that's not good enough. Gen Ford will be a force for good. The other eight tenets of our pledge are all derived from our guiding first pledge to be a force for good things in the world. The next one is, I'm going to actually give you all the tenets. I'm just not going to read them to you. Two is remember our roots. Three is stand up for others. Four is respect privacy. Five is create opportunities. Six, avoid the entanglements of politics. Seven, listen to our community. Eight, never stop improving. Nine, plant trees in hearts and in the ground. I'm going to read for you tenant three now. Stand up for others. Sadly, in our society today, many times those attempting to do the most good come under hardships and even attack. Many crowdfunding activities on Indiegogo have sought to help such individuals. Gen Ford pledges a portion of our profits to be set aside each year to help such individuals, be it via Indiegogo or through other channels. So not only will we be a force for good, but we will also stand up for those that are attacked, whether it be anything from an HOA to a governmental agency who are trying to do good things in the world and people that just have nothing better to do than get in the way with the good, get in their way. We can't help everybody, but we'll help a few people every year with profits that we'll put aside just for that uh, purpose. And there's several of these other tenants that also involve us sequestering a specific portion of profits every year solely for the purpose of honoring our pledge. Gen Ford is going to be a company unlike anything else that's ever been launched before. And I promise you, if you have a family, especially a family and people that will be here after you're gone just due to age, generations forward, that you care about and you want to preserve for them that's what that which is left of what your grandparents had and you want to share with them the world as it is now when they may be so far into the future that they don't even know. And revisionist historians and revisionist politicians have changed the truth about what is and what was. You're going to want to be part of this. And if you've ever had a question that remained unanswered from someone you can't ask it to now, you're going to want to be part of this. In other words, if you have family, Gen Ford is for you. If you want to know more, genford.com. Fill out the form. And remember, one of our tenants is respect privacy. Anyway, with that, on Monday you can get the full pledge. I'll be sending it out. I've been holding off on it to get as many people in as possible before I send it because I'm only going to send it once. Everybody else that joins the list afterward will have to wait 
until uh, later to find out exactly what the whole pledge is. And again, you'll be able to figure out 90% of Gen Forward from the pledge. Remember, you do promise not to tell anybody that's not on the list about anything you learn from the list until we tell you it's okay to do so. It's a little bit marketing, but it's also strategic in making sure that we don't have a larger company jump the gun in front of us with doing this. Next up, I want to talk about Ebola before I take your first question today. And I want to talk about it very, very briefly. But I want to point something out. I've already explained how Ebola is not airborne. I'm not going to do it again. I'm just not. It's not. I've already explained why healthcare workers who work with sick people who are dying are more likely to get Ebola uh, in spite of protective gear than you are if you sit across the seat on a bus from somebody who's had Ebola for three days. Um, I want you to think about this. The guy that brought Ebola to America, I don't remember his name now, but patient zero as far as the United States goes, that came here with Ebola, knew he had been exposed, went to the hospital, hospital sent him home, went back to the hospital later, was home, he was sick, puked all over the place at his apartment. Family members cleaned it up. His family does not have Ebola. Right? They're worried that they're shutting schools down because some kid knew some kid that knew some kid that was a friend of a kid that was, I mean, just stupid. Okay? Um, but his family who cleaned up his vomit with no protective gear don't have Ebola. And the reason is because Ebola is not highly contagious until the patient is in that deep stages when the virus population is high and the discharge of infected fluids is high. And then yes, one little droplet can be aerosoled onto you and you can get it. Alright, that's why the healthcare workers get it. But there is something to be shit scared of due to Ebola. It is not Ebola related directly at all. But the way I put it in a Facebook post yesterday is as follows. To those of you scared about Ebola, I do have something you should fear, but it isn't Ebola itself. It is how inept the government is with something as relatively easy to contain as Ebola. No one is saying that, not even me until now, because I can't take it anymore. I've been waiting to see if anyone gets it. Two listeners did comment to me to this effect yesterday. But where the heck is the medical community on this? Why the hell wasn't a CDC team dispatched from Atlanta the second they knew Ebola was on the ground in DFW? Why is there still no one there? This is why this is what should scare people. Not Ebola itself. The true, open, gangrenous wound in our pandemic preparedness that is exposed by peeling back a rotten, stinking bandage and showing us what lies under it. Somebody commented on that. Rush Limbaugh has been all over this. I bet you fat-ass Rush Limbaugh has been all over how this is all Obama's fault. Let me tell you something about the CDC. The CDC does not need to call Washington and ask Obama or anybody in the Obama administration for they get their little asses on an airplane, fly from Atlanta to Dallas, and take over the situation. Just like the FBI, who notices a murder, matches a murder in Florida and Utah, becomes multi-state, doesn't need to call the president and say, hey, can we invoke federal jurisdiction here? No, 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 no. The CDC is capable of doing this all by themselves, and yet they refuse to. I know there's a big debate about whether or not we should let people come in here from Africa. I personally think that it's stupid we haven't shut down the travel in. I think all the excuses made for it are bullshit. 
Well, they could go somewhere else first and then get here, and that gives them more time to become symptomatic before they get here, and we can still screen for people whose travel originated, let's say, in West Africa within the last two weeks. We can still screen for that even if we don't allow direct inbound transportation into North America. This is something we can contain. We do have the ability to contain it, but we have people that are so blissfully incompetent in what they're doing and so arrogant that they're actually letting it become a problem. And it's still only going to be a mildly symptomatic problem in relation to the population of 300 million people. But what this should do for you is show you that when it comes to something like what if there is a particularly virulent strain of flu that's killing two or three out of a 100 people infected with it, uh, or 10 or 20 out of a 100 people infected with it, or requiring hospitalization for, let's say, even 10% of those, and if the hospitalization's there, they, they generally make it, or anything like that, or any other disease or illness, your government's plan is, dun-dun-dun, they don't have one. That's right, they have no plan. And this isn't Obama's fault. This is not Obama's fault. Uh, would a different presidency maybe a little bit be a little bit more decisive, maybe invoke executive privileges and shut down the travel and what have you? Yeah, but this is a symptomatic problem of the whole. If there was a Mitt Romney in the presidency right now, um, the CDC probably still would have been as inept as they were. The Dallas hospital wouldn't be just as unprepared as it is. And hospitals throughout the nation are not prepared to deal with an epidemic or a pandemic. They're just not. And no one's actually really thought about making them prepared. Um, I have more to say on this. I'll leave it go for now. Uh, but that's what you should be afraid of. That's why you should be upping your preps. That's why you should be thinking about how would I deal with a pandemic. Not because Ebola is going to be a pandemic. Because it's not going to be a pandemic. And anybody telling you it is is lying to you for the sake of saying, pay attention to me or selling you shit. But because sooner or later we are going to deal with a pandemic of some sort. And when we do, the government currently has no plan. So you better have one for yourself. Let's go ahead and take that first call. Hi, Jack. This is DH from Colorado's Western Slope. I have a question about where you see Bitcoin in the asset portfolio strategies like the permanent portfolio or the asset allocation that you recommended. Personally, I would think of this as a cash equivalent, but I wanted to see if you would lump it together with things more like precious metals or some other tangible asset. Love to hear your comments. Thanks. Bye. Well, I can be brief on this one, but the first thing I have to say is no, Bitcoin I do not see as a cash equivalent. It is liquid to cash, but it is way too volatile for me to consider it a cash equivalent. It moves up and down with way too much erratic behavior. Uh, I view it much closer to silver or gold. Um, it is more in line with, let's say, a silver or a gold ETF. They both have these erratic swings and spikes and dips. I, I think that long-term, Bitcoin will become dramatically stable. I think it's stabilized in this $350 to $450 range, uh, very much so already. And over time, it should become stronger and stronger as it's used. There's always wild cards out there, though. There's always government coming out with an attempt to stamp it out, to replace it, to make it irrelevant, to make it too difficult to do business with, etc. They've kind of given up on that for now, but you never know. And they don't... They don't have to actually be successful. All they have to do is do something that makes people fear and makes people start dumping Bitcoin. And even if it's going to come back, if you happen to need your money then, 
it's tied up in there. So I'd be careful with the amount allocated. I see Bitcoin this way. It's a way to make your money infinitely safe from a standpoint of security. Right now in Coinbase, for instance, which is pretty public as far as ways you can hold Bitcoin, because I can take Bitcoin offline with a mnemonic device, have it in my head, and without that code, you can't get my money. I can get on a plane and get off anywhere in the world and get my money back, and no one can get it. So that's when I say when I say safe, I mean that. But even with Coinbase, so I have a vault in Coinbase. So once I get a certain amount of Bitcoin inside, I don't want all my Bitcoin just sitting in the general account where it could be hacked or, or something, which is already extremely secure. And I move it into a vault. When I move it into a vault, they say, hey, you got to put a second email address on, on with us. Okay, And you have to always, with Coinbase, you have to have a, a cell phone too. So if I decided then that I wanted to move my money back out of that vault, it takes 48 hours for that money to become accessible. And I'll put it there on my own. It's not like somebody locked it up on me to make it safe. When I initiate the procedure to bring it out of the vault and make it usable, I get two emails and a text message. I have to acknowledge all three, and then I get multiple contacts for the next 48 hours reminding me I've done this and asking me, are you sure you still want to do this? This means to effectively get to that money, you would need to hack two email accounts and my cell phone to get to that money, and it would still take you 48 hours. So that means I'd have 48 hours if I had any access back to my own email or cell phone to tell Coinbase, no, don't do this. There's nothing in the banking system that's that secure. There really isn't. There's Banks get hacked all the time, and you know a lot of times you never know about it because they hide it. Um, but you know, if somebody hacks your PayPal account, they can just send your money to anywhere they want to. Um, and the way criminals usually do that is they hack 20 PayPal accounts and they start bouncing the money all around and then it goes out to somebody and, and then that account gets shut down. Uh, it's getting harder and harder for them to do that. Uh, another way they do is they order a whole bunch of merchandise and have it shipped somewhere. And then they, they, they you know sell the merchandise and what have you. So there's all kinds of things that can happen. I'm not saying PayPal's not safe. I'm saying it's nowhere near as safe as Coinbase. It really isn't. PayPal could learn something from Coinbase um, as far as access to the account. When I just log into my Coinbase account, uh, I have it set so that it, it sends me a text message. That text message is a code. I have to then enter that code to actually get into my own account. That means it's a two-step process, not a one-step process. So even if you get my login and my username, you're not getting in unless you also have my cell phone. And Additionally, if you log into my account, like I recently did with my laptop, from a computer that's never logged into the account before, it sees the MAC address, goes, oh, this is new. This is a new machine. Okay, here you go, Ask Clown, and they send me a link to one of my email addresses. I need to click that link to get into my account. So that means that if you manage to get my username, my password, and my cell phone, but not my computer, and use the computer somewhere else, you'd still need access to my email account just to get into my basic account, let alone my vault. So I see Bitcoin as this amazing way to move money, lower transaction costs, democratize things, uh, make your money extremely secure from a security standpoint, in spite of all the hype and BS, and to do business either very publicly because you want to or very anonymously because you want to. And to always have some piece of wealth that no matter what happens to everything else you own, you can always go somewhere and start over. But the risk is the volatility. Now, will that volatility ebb? I think it will. 
But even when I say it's stabilized between $350 and $450, um, okay, so let's say you had $4,500 in Bitcoin uh, at $450, and the day you need it, it's at $350 a coin. Well, now you have $3,500. That's significant. That's like 25% volatility where it's stable. So that's why like when we did Permethos, people said, why don't you take Bitcoin for it? Because it would be a lot more work to just immediately convert to Bitcoin into dollars because we're not going to hold capital assets in a company uh, in, in Bitcoin. We're just not going to do it. Now, I think long-term, again, this will ebb. I think it'll be a lot more stable. And I think people will start to do business in Bitcoin without really looking at the dollar. So instead of saying, well, it's uh, $25 in Bitcoin, it'll be it's uh, a Saatchi or whatever. It, it won't really be about how it pegs to the dollar eventually as it develops its own economy. But for now, it's pegged to the dollar. And every choice made to buy, spend, sell, exchange Bitcoin is based on how it relates either the dollar or the currency of the individuals doing the transaction. So for now, I see it as a volatile but secure method of storing wealth. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Mike from Southern Ohio, and I'm curious as to your thoughts about deer hunting in areas that have lots of uh, corn and soybeans and stuff that's rather, you know, most likely genetically modified. I try to keep all that stuff away from my family as much as I can and don't even feed my chickens that, so just curious if that's a concern for you. Thanks. It isn't really, and I don't think it should be for most people either, unless their personal regimen, when you say, well, I don't feed it to my chickens and my, you know, whatever. I, I don't feed genetically modified food to my chickens and my ducks or my geese. And um, I'm very happy about the fact that I know that the eggs they're producing, or when I kill one of them, the meat that I'm getting is 100% GMO-free. I'm quite happy about that. But if you come to my house, it, it, it might be the case that I'll throw out some corn chips, and it's probably the fact that those corn chips have some GMO in them. It amazes me the people that will, will go to the extreme of, well, I would need a deer that might have been near a GMO cornfield and turn around and eat some Doritos. Now, we don't live on that stuff, and we keep it more for visitors than we do for other folks. Um, and we try to go with organic and whatever whenever you can find it, but occasionally we'll eat some food that we're pretty sure there's some GMO in. Don't like it. It's the modern world, and I think it's all about, well, are you living on it or not? And then I do think there's a big difference between eating GMO soy and eating an animal who part of its diet contains GMO soy. And then there's another difference to an animal whose entire diet is made up of GMO soy and corn, etc. That those three are very different things. And the one in the middle, an animal whose diet... So let's say somebody's pasturing poultry. And they're feeding conventional feed. That chicken is going to be a two to 300% better chicken than a confinement operation feeding the same feed. And it's going to be a 1,000% better than a Purdue chicken that, that lived in a chicken house of horrors and was processed in its own feces. And that chicken that's out there on the field, if it's got a good grain mix, it's likely only the corn and the soy are the GMO products and things that are, might else be in there like sorghum and wheat are not. Okay, Now, they still might have some pesticides and stuff, but... It, then the animal's also living on pasture. It's eating clover. It's eating ryegrass. It's eating bugs, and et cetera. So its whole diet isn't GMO like a confinement chicken is. Right? Now we go to a deer. Now, a deer lives in the woods. And if there's a great big cornfield out there, you bet that deer will go into that cornfield. And he'll browse in that cornfield. But the time where the deer can actually eat corn and get 
an ear of corn and eat some corn is actually a relatively short period of time. We've all grown corn, right? And you you have this grass that grows up and it gets some tassels on it and it gets some silk and then eventually those things pollinate and you get corn. And the deer will eat the corn. They'll eat the shit out of it. The same with soybeans. They'll eat the pods right off of the bushes. I've seen them do it. They're, they're happy to eat it. But those deer are going out to those fields as much for the edge effect as they are for the crop itself. If the deer lived on the crop, the farmers would be out there with machine guns shooting deer, right? They, they only, I mean, they're, they're most, they're going to take much less of the crop's yield than insect pests who will feed on the leaves, etc. The deer will go out in the field and they'll spend a lot of time on the edge of that feed, field browsing the, the edge because there's all types of other browsing there for them. And they may pick up some glyphosate or atrazine or something like that, but they're also going to be in the woods. They're eating acorns. They live 365 days a year. They have this narrow window that they can actually harvest, if you want to call that, agricultural crops. So would I prefer to get my deer uh, from a wilderness, mountainous area where it has no access to corn and soy fields? Yeah, I would. Would I consider a deer that has access to those things edible? No, not at all. How much better would I say a deer that has free choice access to that stuff, only a certain time of the year, is in quality compared to, let's say, uh, a venison product of some sort, raised on a farm, fed directly, uh, GMO grain is 100% of its diet in a confinement operation, about a thousand times better, about a thousand times better in nutritional value and in safety and in overall quality. So I have zero real concerns about that. I'd prefer it wasn't there, but in a world of grays, you're going pretty pretty far to the white gradient and very, very far away from the dark side as soon as you start to, to you know deal with animals that are spending the majority of their time honestly making a living off the wild. Hey, Jack. Justin San Diego again. Uh, hopefully I'll help me out with something here. My barley stopped sprouting. I put together a bucket sprouting system like you have, and a few months ago, my barley stopped sprouting. I thought it might be the temperature, but it's cooled off here. My barley still won't sprout. Do you have any ideas? Any suggestions would be helpful, man. Again, thanks a lot. Take care. All right, Jesse, what you got to do is you got to figure out what changed because the laws of physics... And the properties of barley grain have not changed. So what could have changed? Temperature is one thing that could have changed, but that doesn't seem to be it. And you have to have really, really hot temperatures for barley to fail to germinate. Um, or really, really cold ones, one or the other. So I don't think that's what it is. I've actually had barley that, you know, sitting in the bucket ends up iced and, uh, and then warmed up during the day and then you uh, frost a little bit the next day and still sprout. So, uh, cold or heat, I don't see being that big of an inhibitor. Um, the things that could have changed would be, one would be obvious and probably not the case, your bucket's clogged and the barley's too wet. Uh, two, the water that you're using. Three, and most likely in my instance, would be the barley you're getting. So you might have got some bad barley. I mean, that's that's always a possibility. You have some old-ass barley that laid around, but still you should get some germination. Or you, your procedure. So just to review the procedure, we take a bucket, we put our barley for fodder in that bucket with no holes in it. 
You soak it in that water for 24 hours until it's fully hydrated. The next day it goes into a bucket with holes, and then it's rinsed with clean water. And we make as many buckets as, as many days as we want our cycle to be, and we can just put our buckets in a stack and dump a bucket of water through it twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. We keep the barley in a relatively cool and not necessarily dark, but not highly sunny location, and we just judge the, the, the level of sprouting to the level that we want for our animals. If we're feeding it to ruminants, we probably want to grow four or five inches maybe even of grass and, and root mass. Uh, maybe a couple inches, depends on what animal we're feeding it to and how long we want to take to do this. For chickens and turkeys and geese and what have you, you're usually better off when you just have basically something that looks like, you know, sprouts a person would eat. Uh, just a big root mass or little tiny bits of green. Uh, the geese like quite a bit of green. The chickens like almost no green. The ducks, I don't know. I haven't sprouted any since I got the ducks. I actually have uh, several sacks sitting out there, and I need to get the, the system running again. During the summer, there's so much for them to forage on. I prefer to keep them interested in doing things like killing grasshoppers. But uh, either you changed your procedure, and you stopped following the procedure, uh, or you got some bad seed. Those are the two most likely things. And the other variable would be the water. Uh, there had to be something really messed up with the water for that to happen, but it is the other variable. Uh, but the mechanics and natural functioning of barley seed and moisture and sprouting and germination haven't changed because last time I checked, still plenty of beer available. So examine those things. If anybody else has ever had a problem where you've had it working, it stopped working, and you figured it out and it started working again, like to know because I just can't see how as simple a process it is as unless something radically changed or you got bad barley that it would stop working. Uh, you're not using rolled barley, are you? You know, it's flaked or anything. It's got to be seed. Just saying. I doubt that, but I had to throw it in there. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Jesse from Vermont uh, calling you to see if you'd be able to help me out with being a more organized prepper. Uh, I am uh, uh, prepping, but it is, um, it's awfully disorganized. And I didn't know if you had any tips or uh, advice to give out to me and your listeners. Looking forward for the feedback. Thank you. Well, anybody that's ever been to my garage can tell you, I am not the most organized guy on the planet. I'm really not. Or if you've been in my office, uh, there'd be papers jumbled around and everything. So I don't know if I'm the greatest guy to ask about how to do this. Uh, the organizational stuff is left more to Dorothy. But I think that there's two ways to take this question. One is, how do I organize all my stuff? And in that case, you have to figure out what works for you. And, uh, you know, knowing where everything is is a good way to do that. Packaging things that you're only going to use in unless there's an actual emergency in some out-of-the-way place that's easy to get to and knowing where it is and writing it down so you don't forget is a good idea. But I think the real thing that happens with disorganization with prepping isn't really about where all the stuff is. It's about how things are acquired and plans are made, etc. And I think that the problem is what happens is the knee-jerk reaction. And the knee-jerk reaction goes like this. Oh, Ebola's in the news. We're not prepared enough for a pandemic. Let's go out and buy a bunch of shit that prepares us for a pandemic. And then, well, you know, eventually the elections will be over and there won't be so much reason to make hype about Ebola anymore. It'll kind of ebb away. Christmas will come. Life will go back to normal. And there'll be some disasters in sure of the winter of 2015, probably ice storms. So then we're going to run out and do all the things we should have already done that relate to ice storms. And then we just keep this reactionary model going. 
And I think the, mo the most people that are disorganized, that's why they're disorganized. Because it's go do this, go do this, go do this. It's like the guy with the spinning plates act, right? And you got to run over here and spin this plate and then run over here and spin that plate and then climb up on the chair and spin that high plate and then get back on the bottom and spin that plate. we got to keep the plates going, going, going. We're all over the place. Now, that guy's actually highly organized. It's the only way you can do that act. But uh, it'd be more like the comical version of it where you can't keep the plates spinning. That's how we feel. And that is not how to prep. So I think the biggest way you can be organized is to always start with the basics. Always start with food, water, shelter, energy, security, health, and sanitation. Go through them. Become self-sufficient for three days for all of them. Just do that. Three days. Most of that should be able to go in a bug-out kit. Probably not all of it in a bag, but a bug-out bag, maybe a trunk, maybe some peripheral stuff, and then make a plan. If I have to bug out, where am I going to go? Put your documentation package in order. That'll start organizing people, contacts, bank accounts. That'll make all that happen if you follow the documentation package procedure that I have. I'll put a link in today's show notes where you can get that as well, so you can do that. So you get three days in that. Then say, okay, if I have to leave, I'm good. But no, wait a minute, now you're good if you have to stay. You're way past three days of staying capability at that point. You're easy at a week because you've got all the comforts of home. Except, wait a minute, energy. Yeah, right? So then we get us, ourselves a, a little 800-watt uh, inverter for 50 bucks, some extension cords, things like that, low-level lighting and stuff. Uh, some of the, the three-way uh, gang plugs like Stephen Harris recommends. We put them all in a bin. We stick that in our closet, okay? So now we can run almost everything in our house off our car. Huh? We got that done. We start saying, okay, since I have more room here, let's get some emergency lighting. Let's get some candles, let's get some batteries and some flashlights. Let's just put that all in the same bin and call it our blackout kit. Now that's organized. That's good to go for now. We don't need generators. We don't need battery banks. We don't need anything yet. We're just kind of getting ourselves into this basic readiness. Now we're going to say, okay, let's copy can. Let's get the pantry deep. And you can do some of these concurrently. So now we start doing, I used a can of wolf chili. I'm going to go to the grocery store and buy a new one. I'm going to buy two instead of one. Let's just get the pantry deep. We get the pantry deep through that method. We make sure we can keep the freezer working with the inverter from the car. We only have to run it a few hours a day to keep the food safe. We can go weeks now. We can probably go a month. With no power, we can go a month. We haven't really spent a lot of money. We haven't really spent a lot of energy. In that, we want to think about our medical needs, Make sure we have a plan to deal with our waste, but we just get a 30 days. When you get to 30 days, just evaluate your 30-day readiness. Just say, is it really that good? And tweak it so it really is 30 days of not just okay, but relative comfort. Now, let's extend our energy readiness. Let's put in a battery bank. Okay, I think that's an incredibly good idea. And let's get a decent, let's get the best generator for our needs that we can afford. Our energy is in really good shape at this point. Now, let's start building up a gas supply. Let's go out. Let's buy a gas can. One extra gas can. Let's, this month, fill up that gas can and put a big number one on it in a black Sharpie and put it somewhere safe. And we're just going to do that every month for the next 12 months. And at month 13, we're going to take the one with the one on it. We're going to dump it in our car. We're going to take it with us and fill it back up and put it back in line. We're just going to do that. See, so now we've got 60 gallons of gas. We got all the gas in the vehicles. Let's make it a policy: the fuel tank never gets lower than a half tank. 
We've got an inverter. We've got a battery bank. We've got a generator. We've got lights. We've got food. As we're doing all this, let's just push the food to 60 days of readiness. And at that point, you can leave. You can stay. You can feed yourself and your family for two months. If there's a blackout, you're going to get through it. You can take care of basic illnesses and ailments when you can't get away from the house. You know how to get in touch with everybody that you need to in the middle of a disaster. You've evaluated all your communications protocols. You've made an evacuation protocol. You might probably need to square away your debt and your finances. But right now, you are a responsible adult. And if America was made up of responsible adults, 99% of what can happen wouldn't be that big of a deal unless it happened to you. So if you happen to be in the house when the tornado blows it up and you're not there anymore and all your stuff's gone, you got a total level of different problem, like being dead with a two-by-four through your head. All right? But other than that type of thing, which there's things you can't get around, you get hit by a gravel truck, you're dead. You're dead. And your problems really are over to those of you off behind. Hopefully you've got preps made for you know end of life. That's basic life insurance, though. That's cheap-term life insurance for that stuff. So it's really not that hard. It's this concept of reactionary prepping that makes all this complicated. Don't watch shows like Doomsday Preppers. They'll get you thinking the wrong direction. Turn the freaking news off. They'll just hype you up over bullshit. Relax. Put your life in order. Now, if you want to know how to make sure everything is in its place and all that stuff, if I had unlimited means, I would hire an organizational specialist to come into my house at least once a quarter and reorganize everything for me. There are people that are amazing at that type of organization. I am not one of them. We all have our limits and we all have our weaknesses. So my view is... As long as I kind of sort of know where everything is and I know what we have and I have a basic running inventory of it and I follow my procedures, I'm going to be in good shape. And I think that's the big thing. So things like the gas. If the procedure is the first week of the month, I'm either getting a new can, I'm spending the money incrementally over a year to like get a 60 gallons, or I'm taking an existing can, dumping it in the vehicle, filling the can back up, the procedure is easy to follow. Organization is a natural extension of that. So with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Oh, real quick, the last question on barley fodder. I did a great article called A Dead Simple Fodder System. There's a link in today's show notes to that as well, in addition to the documentation package that I did that show many, many years ago. And I think that gets you way down the scope of uh, organization. In fact, on that note, I had a question a few weeks ago about golf cart batteries. So have a golf cart 48-volt system, and I kind of fudged it up. I really did. And now that I understand what Steve's saying and what another person told me is saying, it makes perfect sense. I actually used to do it with running 12 volts off of uh, 24-volt systems in the military all the time. But I'm going to let Steve explain it. And he mentions having a few beers. I think I had a few scotches when I read his email, and it didn't make any sense to me. Anyway, Steve, follow up on uh, running your house with battery power from a uh, 48-volt golf cart that's made up with a bank of multiple GC2 golf cart batteries. Take it away, Steve, and then I'll be back with another one of your questions. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Council calling in about using golf cart batteries from a golf cart for powering your house or as a battery bank during an emergency. This is a follow-up to a question that Jack answered uh, previously to someone, and he asked me to comment on it. 
And uh, I emailed Jack the comment that I had on it, and he wrote me back and said, What are you smoking, Harris? What the heck do you mean? <laughs> he admitted to having a couple of beers before he wrote that. But anyways, I'm going to tell you what the heck I mean. Now, I did some research for you. Now, of course, we all know golf carts come in generally either 36 volts or 48 volts, and they're made up out of, generally they're made up out of 6-volt batteries. Uh, and the 36-volt golf carts are the most common. Now, if you wanted a 36-volt inverter to clamp on the battery pack to uh, make electricity from, it would cost over eight hundred dollars. That's eight hundred hundred dollars, and that's from Triplite. So and it's a little big. So that's really kind of out of the what you want to do. A forty-eight volt inverter is a little cheaper. They're three hundred and thirty-five dollars, and that's for a fifteen hundred watt Ames inverter, also on Amazon. Now. There are converters or voltage reducers that go from 36 or 48 volts down to 12. And I found some of those for about 36 bucks. But it's only 30 amps, which means it's only 360 watts maximum. Now, since Steve Harris says that the most you want to draw from a battery bank is generally 30, 40, or 50, or 60 watts, because you want your battery bank to last a long time, then this will work for you with a small inverter. It's an inexpensive solution. Now, if you have to power your 800-watt sump pump, which is okay to run off a battery bank because it's only running for 30 seconds, plus the consequences of sump pump not running are pretty high, then this won't work for you. So... I have a concept called the free space. That's F-R-E-E-S-P-A-C, the free space idea of hooking up an inverter to a golf cart battery system. Now, let's say you have a 1,500-watt or 2,000-watt inverter because, and you want to run it off your golf cart because you just have to have that damn cup of coffee in the morning and or you want to run your microwave for a few minutes, or you might really be desperate to run your freezer for a few hours a day. What do you do? Well, here's what I'm talking about. The golf cart, let's say it's a 36-volt golf cart. It's got six batteries in it, okay? Put, in, put into your mind six batteries. Now, they're hooked up. Positive to negative, positive to negative, positive to negative, positive to negative, etc. So they're all in series. So picture you're in your head, six batteries all in a line. Now I know in the golf cart they're all jumbled up, so they because they have to fit. But picture in your mind, it's the same thing: six batteries all in series, positive to negative, positive to negative in a straight line. Okay. The Batteries are six volts a piece. So that means if you put a voltmeter across the bottom two batteries, it's 12 volts. If you put a voltmeter across the bottom four batteries, it's 24 volts. If you put a voltmeter across all the batteries, it's 36 volts. So here's what you want to do. 
you take your golf cart, you drive it up to your garage or wherever it's going to be, and you turn it off, and you pull the keys out of it, okay? When the keys are on, you're driving, you have a functioning circuit. When the keys are out of it and the golf cart is off, you have six batteries basically sitting in free space, and you can do with them what you want. So you take a 12-volt inverter, and you put it across the bottom two batteries, which is 12 volts, okay? The inverter doesn't see the other batteries because there are, it's in free space. The um, electric motor is disconnected. There's no other circuit. So the inverter only sees the bottom two batteries, which is 12 volts, and you use that. Now, keep in mind, you do not want to cross the streams as the saying goes, which means you don't want the metal case of your inverter to touch anything metal on the golf cart because that can also be ground. With what I'm about to tell you, that would generate a short circuit, lots of sparks and a fire and everything else. So when you're hooking on, make sure the cables are long and the golf and the inverter is well outside of the golf cart. So you've hooked on to the bottom two batteries and you got 12 volts and let's say you run these all the way down and you deplete them okay now you're going to move up to the second set of batteries you're going to go up to batteries number three and four you were on batteries one and two 12 volts now you're going to go across batteries three and four not across one and four just across three and four that is 12 volts right there for you Again, make sure your case is not touching anything metal on the golf cart. Then, if you deplete those batteries, you're going to go across the next set of batteries, batteries 5 and 6. Again, this is going to be 12 volts because as long as the uh, key is out of the ignition, you're not using it as a golf cart, it's just like having six batteries sitting sitting in free space. And you can go across the first two, then go across the second two, you can go across the third two, and you get 12 volts off of them at each time. I hope I tried to make this clear for you and you understood it. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Council. Please call in some more questions. And for all of you new people, you will find all of my stuff I have done with Jack at www.steven1234.com. I have true stories and testimonials up there. I've added even more since the last time I talked to you. Thanks, guys. You're wonderful. I love doing questions for you. It's an honor. Please call in some more. Bye. Hello, Jack. This is Scott in Central Missouri, and um, I am insulating a you know cold weather uh, garden bed, uh, two of them in fact, with straw that I got from a guy on a, a pretty good deal. Uh, now it's sprouting up. I spread some of it into the uh, the garden itself for a little cover, and um, uh, already had a bunch of of it in there. But uh, the new stuff is sprouting up around the vegetables that I want coming up broccoli, pak choy, things like that. Um, I'm trying to treat it maybe like a solution in and of itself as a cover crop, um, but wondered if I need to kind of cut it back to keep the competition to a minimum. Anyway, um, I appreciate your help, and I look forward to hearing about this, about your thoughts on it. Thanks. 
Well, there is a myth that if we spread straw versus hay, we'll have less weeds and germination. And it's a myth because there's weeds in every field. And when you get straw, which of course, when you get, when you get hay, you're getting a grass product of some kind that's cut before it goes to seed. So the majority of the nutrition is still in the grass and it's palatable to cows and horses, etc. And straw is when we've grown it for a grain and it's gone to a grain and we've taken the grain heads off of it and we have what's left. The stubble is a hollow straw. So that's why it's called straw instead of hay. So you might have less seed in straw in some ways, but you're still going to have seed in straw. And every bale of straw I've ever gotten my hands on, whatever it was, it was rice straw or wheat straw or barley straw, there's always been some seed heads in there. They never get 100% of it, especially you know in the world of mechanized harvesting. So what you'll generally have sprouting in your straw are three main things. One, you will have the remnants of whatever the straw was growing. Rye, wheat, barley being the most common because it's hard to get rice to germinate that way. It really is. In most of the country anyway. Um, the other is weed seeds that were in the straw. So when the machine went through, took the heads off, separated it, and you ended up with the straw, you ended up with all the weeds that were intergrowing in that field. So you get some of those seeds that will germinate in there. The third is it's not really anything to do with straw. There's weeds in your garden, and when you mulch it and water it and provide nutrient, some of those weeds go, aha, the germination conditions are right. So you have this variety of things that could be coming up. But the way you're describing it, it sounds like it's coming like right out of the straw, and I've seen that many times. You have to make a decision for yourself about what it is. Let's say it's oat straw. Caius oat, or white oat, is a great cover crop. It also has a massive root system. So if you want to get it out and you don't want it to grow up, you want to pull it when it's very, very young. Because I have had Kayaso grow in a garden bed and decide one day, hey, you know what, I want that clump out. And pull one clump out and you get like a gallon. enough You can just pull it out and stick it in a gallon bucket. And I don't mean a gallon nursery container that's actually like six-tenths of a gallon. I mean like a, a one-gallon pail, like a paint pail it would fit in. That's how much comes out just when you yank it out of friable soil, sometimes more. Um... There's all types of things in there. I am going to this with my vegetable gardening, though. The, the Fukuoka method, you know, Masanobo, who would always seed white clover everywhere and a little bit of daikon and some other things. And then your vegetables. And whenever he was doing a new crop, whether it was a grain crop like barley or a vegetable crop, you go in, you seed your clover and your, your, your vegetables, And then you go through with a scythe, and you, you you cut down. And you could use a string trimmer for this, really. You cut down all the weeds, all the old growth, and you let it go on top, uh, i.e. the one-straw revolution of everything you've just put down. And vegetables generally grow pretty tall, and they'll get up above the weeds, and the clover is prostrate, meaning it, it, it goes low to the ground. If you've ever seen a field full of white clover, um, even if it hasn't been mowed in months, it's not very high. You know, you walk in, it's like ankle deep. It just is not a tall growing plant. It chokes everything else out. So it gives the vegetables plenty of time to get up over the clover. And the way you control weeds then is just a little bit mechanically. You get some weeds you see coming up, you just chop them, drop them. Some weeds you extract. That's the approach I'm going to. And the clover is improving the soil. It's attracting beneficial insects. And you just do this over and over and over again. I bought a 25-pound bag of clover 
Uh, I'm doing a lot of seeding in a large area, and I'm going to be giving away seed mix at the, the upcoming fall workshop. Um, but if I was running, let's say, uh, a garden the size that my grandfather used to run, which was eight raised beds about 60 feet long, that bucket of clover, I wouldn't even buy that much at one time because I'm worried about germination rates over time. Uh, would last me years and years and years and years. A pound would last you two or three seasons. So it seems expensive, but it's not. Most people that seed clover, especially white clover, hugely overseed it. It's self-reseeding. It's perennial. It's just a little kick each season. And the I've, I've seen gardeners who have gone to this approach, and it saves them a lot of energy. You're not bringing in ground cover. You're not doing a lot of weeding. And, okay, I don't want to plant my tomato from seed. I want to plant a tomato plant. Fine. Take your garden trowel, cut a hole in the clover. Dig a hole, stick the tomato plant in it. In fact, cut the clover out of the hole like sod. Put the tomato plant in the hole, flip the clover over like you're flipping sod upside down, put it right back there, and sprinkle two or three little pinches of clover right around the area you've just disturbed, and let it go. That tomato will do just fine with that clover over time. In fact, it'll do better. It'll keep your grass down. So I, I'm not worried about any weeds, whether they come from straw or not anymore. I've gone to this very natural approach. It's a new approach for me as a guy who spent the majority of my gardening life with a lot of successful gardening and you know a nice layer of wood mulch and controlling my weeds with that and, and all and have had great results. It's a little hard, but... Uh, You know, understanding to let go of some of the tidiness in certain areas. Uh, I have these uh, hugel beds that I'm growing trees in now. The Bermuda grass just keeps reinvading. This winter, uh, instead of mulching it again, I'm going to go in there and top dress it with compost. I'm going to seed it with clover and other cover crop. I'll let that come up. And I'm not trying to get rid of the Bermuda grass. I'm just trying to put stuff in there that competes with it. And frankly, I don't really care if it's there. It's not really hurting the trees and bushes that are there. It's not hurting the other tall woody perennials that are there. Uh, I think we've gotten to a point where we think we need bare dirt to grow vegetables or bare dirt with mulch to grow vegetables. The reality is, as I've thought more and more over the years about where volunteer vegetables show up, they always show up in lawns. They always show up in a place with a lot of green vegetation where that seed can get down in there, accumulate a little bit of organic matter around it, and be protected long enough to get up above the grass. Whenever I found you know, a big clump of cilantro, they're like, where the hell did this come from? It's always been surrounded by grass and clover. So that's the approach I'm taking now. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, I think we're looking at the Ebola thing all wrong. We should be able to use this as a tool to get people better prepared to handle the flu. Just let a rumor out that the flu is actually a derivative of Ebola and everybody would be washing their hands six times a day. So anyway, putting a positive spin on a good story. Talk to you later. You know, I know you're, you're making light of it and you're not real serious about this, but I, I don't want to do anything like that. I don't want to contribute to the hysteria and the bullshit around Ebola in any way. But I do think, and this links back to my other comments about Ebola earlier, And uh, the incompetence of government. The fact that it's clear now that they really, these guys have no idea what to do with a highly infectious disease that threatens the United States uh, people. But it also makes me wonder. I always try to blame incompetency over malice. I really, really do. But I also know that incompetency often leads to exposure of a problem. And we should never let a good problem go to waste. I've made a lot of predictions on the show. 
Many of them have come to pass. Many, I'm telling you, are going to happen in the next two years. Sometimes I say, write it down. It's going to be this, and it's going to happen by this certain time. Or write it down. It's over the next three years. This is one of these ones. I'm not sure yet, but I my my spirit sense is telling me this is what we're going to see come out of this. It, it, it's shocking, but government loves to spend money. They just really, really do. And what they love even more than just spending money is spending money while people cheer for it. And if they can spend money while people cheer for it and they get greater control of the population at the same time, this is the trifecta home run for these guys. This is That is the most wonderful day in the life of a bureaucrat. We get to spend money, okay, We get to do it while people are cheering us and demanding that we spend the money. And in the end result, we have greater control of society. Now, I do think out of this will come an Ebola vaccine, and there will be a big push that it's just the smart, safe, sane thing to do. It's so obvious that this is not a huge threat to spread uh, very well that eventually it'll probably kind of fizzle out and like during high-risk times or high-risk occupations or if you're traveling to certain parts, you should get this vaccine. Uh, but then I'll drum it up a little bit and try to make some money off of it, which, hey, why not make some money? That's how these people are. If we damage people's health, it doesn't matter. If we give them unnecessary medication that they don't need that causes health problems and ups autism rates and all, we don't give a shit. We can do that. So that could come out of it. Um. The, the little bit of tinfoil hat in me wants to believe that they let this get a little worse than it had to just to prompt people to want this uh, vaccine or this next thing I'm about to tell you about. Um, but in the end, I know really what it is. This is actual incompetence. But remember that while the dichotomy is bullshit and you vote for a Republican, might as well be a vote for a Democrat and vice versa in most instances. They are two distinctively different mafia families, and they really are fighting for control, and they really both are very totalitarian. Okay, And one will use the perceived weakness to attack the other and gain more control for a time, as the, the control of the whole uh, mafia family uh, empire of the United States moves and ebbs and flows back and forth. This is a great time to kick the Democrats while they're down. Uh, Obama is in the I'm incompetent mode anyway because that's his role to play. He's playing the fool just like he's supposed to because we're about to swing the economy or the dichotomy over to the Republicans for a time of greater liberty taking than you've ever seen. So that's already going to happen. So on top of all this, how can we use this current situation not just to wrest control all the way over to one extreme again, which is what we've had happen multiple times now. Democrats control everything, Republicans control everything. Democrats control everything, Republicans control everything. And the, the split power in the middle and, and what have you. Well, you know, just like after 9-11, we had to spend billions of dollars, create Department of Homeland Security, move organizations underneath it, spend billions on naked body scanners, do this, do that, all while people cheered. You know what's going to come out of this? Some major government program that will provide new high-tech jobs and other bullshit to get all the hospitals ready for pandemic, which they're already supposed to be. Now, the problem with this is going to be They really have no idea how to do that. And they're not about to, at this point, where they've proven that they do not listen to experts anyway, actually go to experts and say, hey, how do we actually do this smartly? How do we do this without an overreaction? How do we get ready 
in case there truly is a, a pandemic of a highly infectious disease so that we can deal with it. And a lot of it's not just what equipment do we put in a hospital. A lot of it's how do we put protocols in place and things like that. Instead of doing that, they're just going to buy a whole bunch of shit and stuff the hospitals to the gills with it. They'll probably create a massive new governmental agency to deal with the problem that isn't. Right, The problem only is if the pandemic comes. And they'll alter the American way of life yet again with greater control under the auspices of safety. Now, whether the incompetence is there to create the opportunity or the incompetence exists and that creates the opportunity doesn't really matter. But I predict that going into the next election cycle, you're going to hear massive calls for increased funding for greater medical security due to the gangrenous wound of you know lack of preparation that we have. Could that be a good thing? What I'm actually saying is they're going to address the problem I'm pointing out. Yes, it could, but do you trust them? Do you think they'll actually address the problem? Especially when most of them don't think the problem ever really is going to happen. This is just an excuse to spend your money and get more control over what? Dun-dun-dun, healthcare. Yes, healthcare. I can see it now, notifying all the healthcare companies. You have to make sure that all the insurance plans you have cover people with Ebola. Right? You have to have Ebola insurance. Uh, and, and they'll come up with this whole list of potentially infectious diseases. They'll ram into the insurance industry. That'll drive the cost of insurance even higher than it's already headed for. And what will people scream for? What I, what I tell you they're going to be screaming for? By 2016 to 2018, people are going to scream for the government to take over health care. The, the whole thing was designed right from the beginning, all the way back when the Unaffordable Health Care Act passed. They knew it wasn't going to work. They knew it was going to screw everything up. They wanted a government seizure, single-payer system for health care then. They couldn't get it done, so what they did was a stopgap measure designed to destroy what was left of a free market medical system to make insurance absolutely unaffordable for people, especially the biggest holdouts. Who are the biggest holdouts against the, the, the health care system being run by the government? It's not all the people on government welfare. They're already getting government health care. They're already on Medicaid, Medicare, CHIP, whatever. right? So they think medical from the government's fine because they have it already. So they're not opposed to it. Okay, The rich don't give a shit. They have their own ways. They don't care. So the hardworking, upper middle class, and many of the self-employed or the people that have jobs that are self-employed like jobs, contractors and things like that, we're the ones most opposed to it because it hits us the hardest. All you have to do is tip 10% of that demographic out and put it into the, I'm for it, and you get about 60% of the country that's for it. And once you have that, it's game over. So this little thing, an Ebola epidemic that isn't, that exposes the lack of preparedness to deal with a truly contagious, infectious disease, will probably, I'm not 100% on this, but will probably lead to a new massive government agency and spending program designed to prevent this type of thing from happening again because it's, and it'll be all, it'll be instead of since 9-11, it'll be since Ebola. It showed us we have to protect ourselves because we need a new enemy. I mean, the whole ISIS is our enemy thing is kind of falling on deaf ears. A nation that's been told this same shit for 15 years now is kind of like, 
Yeah, well, um, maybe if we didn't jack with those people and they're part of the world and didn't try to run the whole world, you know, so that's starting to kind of fade and you're not really to get everybody wrought up over it anymore. And, you know, they point to Putin and the Russians and the Ukraine and you're like, well, that's not really our issue either. And we're tired of this shit. I'd like a job, please. And so we need a new thing for people to be afraid of. So why not infectious diseases? Conveniently, one that's horrifically lethal has shown up. It's exposed the weaknesses in our government system. And all they have to say is, we hear you now. We're going to solve the problem. Of course, all of the people in the R-Mafia family will point to the D-Mafia family and say, see, give us the chance. We'll fix this. And they'll bring you the socialized medicine that I promised you all the way back in 2010. I'm just saying. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew from West Michigan. I was just calling in regards to episode 1437, when you were talking about uh, allocating funds to a savings account, retirement account. Um, I've done that for several years, and even less so into this retirement account uh, since the collapse, uh, or the housing market fell apart. And uh, when my wife and I had our first child in the hospital, They came in and wanted to know how you're going to pay for this. And when I said pay cash, the lady was floored. Uh, about three months ago, I had a medical issue. Went in, you know, several thousand dollar bill. And when it was the same lady came in and said, how are you paying for that? And I said cash. And she just couldn't believe it. Just from putting 6% of my check into a separate savings account besides our emergency account. And it was meant to be an open up a business account, but it turned into keeping us from being in medical debt account. And it's kept us from going into any debt whatsoever. So it's a great plan, and I recommend everybody do it. You really don't miss the money. You don't. You'll miss it a lot worse when you're getting a bill every month for it. So love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Jack. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just one of many examples of the case where it'd be really good if not every dime that I was saving was in my retirement accounts that I can't get to without paying a penalty to the government to get my own money for it. Um, and it also dovetails nicely with the last thing that we just talked about, which is the cost of health care. And when pandemics arise and you have to rule things out, let me tell you a little story about going to an emergency room to rule something out. My wife got sick a few months ago, and she had extreme neck pain. In the end, it ended up being shingles presenting without a rash, which is obviously it's from the chickenpox virus re you know, coming back and hitting you later in life. Um, and she never presented with a rash, and shingles can present without a rash. Um, we went down to a clinic, a CareNow clinic, just so you could get in immediately and not wait for your doctor that you can't see for a week and a half now due to the Unaffordable Care Act. And, you know, they looked at her and said, we don't really know, but with neck pain like that, we got to rule out meningitis. So they said, you guys need to go to the ER. So we went to the ER. She was there maybe five hours, maybe five hours. By the time it was all over with, Without a lumbar puncture, might I add, and we left. We ended up with a bill for, I think, $9,000. She can quick, you know, correct me with that if I'm wrong. Now, we didn't get the bill for the $9,000. The insurance company did. But by the time the insurance company did, I think we were left holding the bag for around $3,000 for five hours in an ER and a few tests. Boy, I bet a lot of that could happen if a whole shitload of people run to the hospital to get Ebola ruled out. What's that going to cost? Um, I'm telling you. A complete, full-on government takeover of the health care system is coming. It will be brought to you by a Republican president. And people, not all the people, but 20% of the people who fought it the first time 
will beg for it the second time. And all the rest of the people, they're already on board with it. And it was all the plan all along. It's coming. It's happening. And the other thing the Republicans are going to bring you guys in 2016, an amnesty bill. Yep. You are getting sold out right now. The, the GOP is already setting up the stage for that election because they know they can't come out against amnesty in 2016. And they know they've got to figure out how to sell it to you. And they're going to do it. 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 And they're going to blame Obama for why they have to do it. But it's what almost all of them have always wanted to do all along. Welcome to America, folks. You know, hashtag wake up America. I've been using that a lot lately. I just don't think my nation is going to wake up anytime soon. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Charlie from uh, North Carolina again. I'm probably going to be calling in a lot, I guess. Uh, big fan. Uh, anyhow, still listening to the Mark Shepard podcast here. And uh, I was wondering, uh, with the whole meat situation, and you were talking about the liver and it being used primarily to uh, process the fats and the meats, how do we reconcile that without fire, uh, that, that, that meat is a normal thing? And I'm not, I'm not saying I believe one way or the other, but, but if meat is a normal thing for a human being to consume without fire and, and, and utensils, I mean, with bare hands and teeth from the, you know, prior to all this stuff, I mean, were we ripping apart animals and eating them? I mean, it seems to me that the, the tree nut and the foraging thing seems to make a lot more sense with the tools that we've been given by nature. But then again, I guess you can't really rule out fire or, you know, technology or, you know, man's cunningness to use other objects. But but prior to doing all that, what did we eat? And was meat on the table at that point? Uh, Mike, here's off on that. Thanks. Well, I, I think the problem that we run into when we start examining this is we're trying to compare uh, a beef cow today to what a person might have eaten, you know, before man even had figured out how to make a spear. Right? So, so man is in his most primitive form at this point. The cognitive things are beginning to develop, etc. Uh, but we're, we're past the monkey here. We're not chimpanzees at this point. So go into the wilderness and what do chimpanzees do? Well, occasionally male bands go out and murder other monkeys and destroy them and gorillas do this too and tear them apart and eat them. So yeah, that, that can happen. Um, but you, if you also watch many of the great apes, you'll see them do things like Here's a stick. Hey, look, there's a hole in the ground. They stick it in and uh, ants or, or termites or whatever grabs onto the stick to defend themselves and off like a lollipop and back in the stick goes. So if a monkey can figure that out, then even a very, very primitive form of man would have figured that out at, at any point, regardless of what you believe about evolution. Right? So uh, the most primitive concept that we can think of of humankind would have at least figured out how to eat insects. Bugs are gross. Okay, well, right now, insects are consumed as a regular part of the diet in 80% of the world and 64% of the population of the entire planet eat insects in the year 2014. What do you think that number was about, oh, I don't know, 20,000 B.C.? So is an insect protein pretty much equivalent to a meat protein? And the answer is, yeah, it is. The next thing we need to think about it is, okay, can man run down a gazelle, jump up in the air, scissor lock its head, put it in a sleeper hold, 
take it down, and start tearing it apart with his claws and eat it. Probably not, and even Paleolithic man was probably not capable of that. But there's all kinds of creatures out there that you just pick up a rock and smash in the head. Right? Birds. Um, if you if you want to know the easiest thing to kill, it's a porcupine. Well, they have they have uh, you know spines. Yeah, that's why they're not afraid of you. So you pick up a club, bud, dead. Flip it over, slit open the belly with a sharp rock, and you got all kinds of stuff there. Then the whole question about fire. When did man discover fire? A shitload long time ago. I'll, I'll tell you that long before. Long before modern agriculture, we knew what fire was. But raw meat is good to eat, okay? The only reason we don't eat raw meat today is because of certain agricultural practices which give us a predisposition to a high amount of things like uh, pathogens and bacterium and, and what have you. Things like in pork and, and other meats, trichinosis and things like that are potentially possible. Uh, and then cultural bias is the same reason the average American doesn't sit down to a plate full of mealyworms. But yet in other parts of the world, it's a, it would be considered an honored guest to be presented with properly prepared mealyworms. So humans have been eating meat-like product for as long as we've been smart enough to know, hey, that moves, it wiggles, I'll kill it and I'll eat it. So we probably came up mostly eating insects and other small, easy-to-kill things. Rats, you know, um, birds. There's a video I'll put on YouTube today. Do you think you need a knife to, to, to clean a dove? Uh, I'll put a, a video out for you today. I'll show you in 30 seconds flat to debreast the dove without a knife, without a pair of scissors, without anything, just your bare hands. So I'll put that video out for you today. So there's tons of things we can do that with. Now, the next thing is, How smart does man really need to be to start figuring out how to move like a wolf pack and hunt animals? And the answer is not that smart. Wolves are smart enough to do it. I believe that the human was a predator, a, a scavenging predator, from his very genesis of being human. In fact, I honestly feel, I have no scientific data to, pick, uh, to back this up, But as I look at the Paleolithic record, and I look at the way human beings act, move, and behave, as I look at indigenous cultures, I am not a creationist in the typical sense. I do believe in a deity, a creator of the total. But if you want me to believe the story of Adam as Eve is a literal translation of what actually happened, I just don't. If you do, you can just take everything I'm about to say, you can put it on the bookshelf. I'm not going to change my mind so that you're not offended. I'm not. My belief, though, is that there was an evolutionary cycle in what made man set apart from the animals. And I believe to a large degree that the ability to communicate, understand, interpret, and hunt was at least part of that. And in every indigenous culture that we can find that truly lives off the land, meat and animal products make up a significant part of what they live on. You'll find... Um, very ancient cultures that are vegetarian. Uh, some sects of Buddhism and Hinduism, etc. Um, but they live in a, a very modern society compared to Paleo, Paleolithic era. In other words, they live in the age of agriculture where one can actually be a vegan. You can't be a hunter-gatherer at a village size and down level without cultivating crops and live without any animal products and, and prosper. You can't do it. It doesn't happen. It has never happened that we know of in recorded history. 
Now, again, it's evolved into some societies that have gone to mostly vegetarian or full-on vegetarian lifestyles, but it requires that. So my counter to this, especially because this objection is put up mostly by the vegan vegetarian world, even though that's, I don't think that's where you're coming from, but they put it out there and it seems like a legitimate question, so we examine it. My counter to them would be, what is more natural? For a human being, what what requires less evolution of the mind, the ability to pull a log apart and eat termites, or the ability to save seed and plant it in the ground? Okay, what requires more modernism, the ability to club something to death, tear it apart, and eat it, or the ability to develop irrigation systems to cultivate wheat and barley? And it's pretty obvious that you can make the argument what is natural and what is unnatural, but the concept of killing and eating as a being is more natural from a standpoint of pure back to the evolution of man is less developed than the concept of understanding which plants to cultivate. I think there's a place for both. You should know that. I've planted probably more trees than most people in this country have in my life. So I'm all about planting edible things and eating vegetables and fruits and, and, and meats. So I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying when we look at how indigenous cultures survive, especially those that have never gone into modern agriculture, there's always a way to kill something. And sharpening a stick, putting an edge on a, on a, uh, on a rock... I think these are natural things for human beings to do. I think these that, that we we look at that and we try to make that like it's some kind of uh, manufacturing process that's highly complicated and required civilization that humans just left to themselves would take generations and generations to figure this out. Well, look at leafcutter ants. They're an insect. They go out, they cut leaves, they bring them inside, they chew them up. They inoculate them with fungus, they farm them, they consume the fungus, not the leaf. And this, this animal evolved to do that. Now, no one would say, well, that's not a natural behavior for an ant. They'd say that's just how that ant evolved. That behavior is natural for that ant. I think that fire, using salt and fire to prepare food, is a natural human evolution. So that, that's how I kind of feel about the whole thing. Let's take one more and we'll be done for the day. Hi, Jack. This is Joe from Orange, California. I just wanted to call and let you know I really appreciate you changing my perspective on what a what a suburban yard should look like. A um, little background, I have a neighbor, actually a guy uh, a couple, couple streets over, and I typically walk my uh, my dogs and go for walks with my, uh, with my kids. And for years I walked past this yard thinking, what a mess, it's overgrown. And uh, after listening to your show, I started looking closer at this guy's yard, and... Um, it is just chucked full of trees. It's full of lavas, papayas, um, loquats, pomegranates, and uh, and I'm just shocked at uh, how he's basically got a food forest. And for for what I would say is many years, I looked at kind of at his yard with disdain. Now I'm actually every time I walk past it, I'm actually jealous. So thanks for changing my perspective and uh, keep up the good work. You know, um, just by the species, you either live in California or Florida. 
right? But I think that kind of thing can be done anywhere. It can be done in North Texas where I'm at. It can be done uh, in northern climates up in Maine and, and Michigan because it's been done. But isn't this a great testament to the real prepping value of doing this? The big excuse given by preppers who do not want to have a garden is, if I have a garden, it's a fan, and everybody's going to come steal my tomatoes. Well, at least you'd have tomatoes to have them stolen. I don't really want to address that. But I think there is a legitimate concern that if food really becomes scarce, that a garden does become a target for people that would steal. It's reason reasonable. Uh, if a garden is nestled in a backyard surrounded by an urban food forest, no one knows the garden's there, and apparently no one knows the urban food forest is there. So this guy walks past this dude's yard time and time again, and all he thinks is, God, it's a mess. That's a mess. It's a mess. Now he walks by a new eyes. There's food, there's food, there's food, there's food, there's food, there's food. And I keep saying it. I don't think people believe me. There is a real advantage for the urban person, suburban person, with permaculture food forestry. Um, you'll never build something to the size of three-quarters of an acre of pure food forest, like I'm working on building right now, but you can build a tenth of an acre a hell of a lot faster than I can build that three-quarters. And you can easily irrigate that 10th acre, 20th, you know, 0.2 acre lot. And I mean, most urban lots there are around 0.15 to 0.25 acres. So a 15th to a quarter of an acre. Um, reading Sowing the Seeds in the Desert, uh, Fukuoka is like, Americans have no idea how good they have it. There's very few lots in Japanese cities of that size. And he looked at that and said, the average American can produce all the vegetables and grain that they wanted for their own use in their backyard if they'd get over tidy lawns. That was his big thing. That's the big thing holding back most of the developed world is that they're worried about a weed. Even the gardeners too worried about weeds. Um, and too worried about being a little unkempt and looking too natural, for God's sakes. Um, so I think that's an awesome story. Uh, I think those of you that are on small land holdings that feel like, ah, oh, one day when I get 10 acres, then I, I think start where you are, grow where you are, and realize as long as there's no HOA or something's going to come get in your way, apparently being tidy and unkempt means your food's secure because apparently people just don't know what it is anymore to look at natural food. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way